Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 306th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Seen Kennefick Rogers. Seen is the CEO and co-founder of Ironwood Wealth Management, an independent RIA based in Chandler, Arizona, that oversees just under $550 million in asset center management for nearly 500 households. What's unique about Seen, though, is how the path that he and his partners took to break away from the insurance and brokerage worlds to run their own independent RIA inadvertently created a three-way struggle to find the proper compensation and accountability across their differing books of business and ultimately forced them to seek third-party intervention from an industry consultant to allow them to restructure the partnership and roles in compensation, which then unlocked the next stage of growth and scaling up the business. In this episode, we talk in depth about the journey that Seen and his partners took from originally starting their careers as an insurance company, then moving to an independent broker-dealer until they ultimately decided to transition to an independent RIA, and on the advice of their attorney, dropped their FINRA licenses altogether to reduce the risks to the RIA and simplify its ADV. How after struggling with infighting over proper compensation and accountability amongst the partners and almost reaching the point of business dissolution, Seen and his partners sought help from an industry consultant to restructure the firm roles and create compensation structures that all the partners could agree was fair and would help the firm refocus on growth. And why shortly after taking on the role of CEO after that restructuring, Seen decided to implement a minimum quarterly fee and expand into an assets under advisement model that manages held away client portfolios through Pontera, increasing both the profitability of the firm and the happiness of their clients who now receive a more holistic service. We also talk about how Seen leveraged the firm's custodial relationship with Schwab to access one of their internal marketing consultants, which then led Ironwood to hiring an external marketing firm to revamp their website and Google searchability and so increase their visibility and digital leads to the point that the revenue they received from new clients more than paid for the whole process. How even though Seen proclaims to be a competitive person and does well under pressure, he was nervous about doing the right thing when taking on the CEO role and turned to his friends who inspired him to form a firm advisory board to gain more confidence that he was making the right decisions for the firm. And how, despite understanding it would be difficult to launch and run an advisory firm, Seen was still surprised by how much work it actually takes and even more surprised by the fact that he really enjoys that work. And be certain to listen to the end, where Seen shares how even though all the partners, including himself, agreed that he should take on the CEO role in their new structure, it was challenging to adjust to viewing the firm not just as an advisor, but its leader and navigate the new pressures that come with having that sole accountability and decision-making responsibility for the firm. Why Seen wishes he and his partners had dropped their licenses and left the broker-dealer environment much sooner is it would have given them more opportunity to create a laser-like focus on the value they wanted to provide to clients. And how Seen measures success beyond just his own contribution to the firm, but instead by building the right internal structures to support his employees so that they can continue to thrive, grow, and find their own successes. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Seen Kennefick Rogers. Welcome, Seen Kennefick Rogers, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. 
I'm I'm really looking forward to today's episode and and talking about just some of the challenges that come in in advisory firms as 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 we really start growing and scaling up. You know, I, I find like there's this path for most firms. Like first we get started, and you're just trying to get any clients to like survive and 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 pay the bills and like <laughs> make enough money to 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 cover yourself. And like it grows a little more. You hire a team member or two. It grows a little more. Like maybe you've got a partner, you take on a partner, like you can start reinvesting a little bit more in a team. But there there comes this point after once firms hit kind of like a, a couple hundred million dollars in assets under management, or usually in practice, like somewhere around two to three million dollars of, of revenue of the business where it just starts getting like a lot more complex and, and messier. Like you really have to start crystallizing an, an org chart and who does what and like clarifying roles and responsibilities. And and all of a sudden, like you have to really pay attention to like exactly how many staff do we have and how many clients are they servicing? Because like the economics of profitability start showing up, particularly when you're you're starting to hire other advisors and staff and team. And and the reality is, just, like no one really trains us to do this because usually when you start as an advisor, you just train to get clients and serve clients. It's the only part they really focus on, not like the business stuff about how to have a multi advisor, multi owner business. And and it just it, it gets messy. And I find for a lot of advisory firms, eventually you you hit this point after a couple of million dollars of revenue where you you almost have to sit down like it's a new business and redesign the business the way that you want it to work going forward because it's just big enough and complex enough now that like what we did at the beginning just isn't working anymore. Like clients are served, it's growing, like it's making some money, but like the businessy stuff gets really messy. And I I know you've lived some of that journey over the past couple of years as well. Absolutely. And so just looking forward to talking a little about like what happens when you hit that crossroad. Just like what what changes in the business that gets to the point where all the stuff you were doing that was working so well just suddenly isn't working so well anymore. So I think to to kick us off, tell us a little bit about your advisory firm as it exists today, just so we have some understanding of the business. And then I, I really want to talk about just how this has evolved over the past several years as as your firm has hit this crossroads. So the firm is owned by uh, three three of us owners. We actually all met um, at an insurance agency back in the day. Um, and we went through the progression of uh, independent broker dealer, and then eventually 100% RIA to where we sit now, which is just fee only. And we currently sit serving about 500 houses and uh, just under 550 million of assets under management. And how big is the team? I mean, you, you mentioned like there's three of you as owners, but how, how many folks are sitting behind you to help make all this happen? Yeah, so the team has really grown over the past couple of years, and we've got 19, including the owners, we've got a 19-person team, and um, we've got six client-facing advisors, two associate advisors, uh, three client service associates, uh, an office manager, an operations person. I know I'm a receptionist and uh, we've got our tax division, which has two folks in it. So, and then we've got our portfolio team, uh, which also has two folks in it. So it's, it's grown over the years. And, and like you said, in your early commentary, there, there definitely comes a point where it is very difficult 
to manage all of these folks, especially if you have three owners that where all the responsibility lies, but none of the responsibility lies. <laughs> yep. So I'm intrigued by just team structure. So you said six six client facing advisors. I'm pr- I'm presuming that that includes the three of you as 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 partners as owners in that six. That's correct. Yep. So like three three owners who have who are client facing advisors, three additional advisors who are client facing, two associate advisors as well. So like how do they how do they fit in? I mean, are they like teamed up to a particular lead advisor? Is that like a central planning department that supports all the advisors? What's the positioning for those associate advisors? So we, we've decided to do um, service teams. Okay. So each advisor has an associate advisor and a client service associate uh, working with the households that they are responsible for. Okay. And, and we, we kind of have you know, gone from a department to more of a service team because the clients, in our opinion, the clients just build relationships with those folks on the service team. And it's, you know, it's been our our thought that the service team model will end up working better for us in the long run. So we've really just built these service teams. And then that's a really good spot for both CSAs and associate advisors to really progress through their career. And, and, you know, one of the things that has happened over the past couple of years is you understand when you start looking at these things that if you don't have a path for growth for some of these younger folks, they, they just, you, you can't, you won't be able to hire them. You, you've got to have a very defined pathway for them to get to where they want to get in order to even hire them at the entry level positions. So I'm I'm curious for this like setting up as service team structure. Is it, it sounds like did did you start as a department structure and then choose to assign them more directly because that's how like clients were connecting and positioning themselves, or just you had always built it as a service team with the expectation that clients would connect more directly to a to a dedicated team. We started off more departments with a a lead advisor and maybe a secondary advisor. And then all of the back office work would go into departments. And we found that that just, it, it, it was just not as smooth as I would have liked it to be. And so we pivoted uh, to more of a service team, and as we as we grew, it just became more apparent that hey, you know, you're you're going to need a certain amount of CSAs for every client. You, you know, you, you do the math, and you're like, okay, well, an advisor can handle about a hundred clients. An associate advisor can help with some of those clients. You can leverage maybe an associate advisor with a couple of advisors, but there's a you know there's a capacity limit for each. Uh, of the roles. And so it just, it just, you know, fit very easily. And uh, we've really embraced the service team model. So like what wasn't working in the department structure? Like, I'm just curious, what was breaking or not cooperating for you? It was a lot of the workflow stuff. It, you know, it's, it's almost like you had a couple people in a division and also turnover and staff experience levels. It just wasn't, as smooth from a client experience standpoint as because, we wanted it to be. 
because of like the the handoffs you know you you yep. there's too many you handoffs, too many you send email. something to a central department and like today bob responds to it but then tomorrow like betty's picking up the follow-up and now the client's getting emails from different people across the department and yeah the ownership wasn't there and now that now that we've really embraced the service teams you get you get even csas to embrace the ownership of their job and the clients that they're assigned to and the advisors that they're assigned to okay so when you've got you know, dedicated CSA or advisors saying you support this advisor or these advisors. This is this is the base of clients that you're supporting. Now just everyone's clear like if this client calls it goes to you because that's part of your client base with your advisor that you support and your job is to see that through to the end. Correct. Yep. And then the advisors can interact and then the it builds a relationship with the CSA and the advisor and the associate advisor. So, you know, one of the things that <laughs> we also learn as, as we go through this process, every advisor does things just a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, the, the operations folks don't like that and they want everything to go the exact same <laughs> way. And no matter how many times I tell my advisors, hey, you have to follow these certain steps, you know, it, it, advisors are creatures that <laughs> make exceptions and, mm-hmm. um, you know, move all over the place. Uh, whereas back office wants everything standardized. And, and, you know, I, I see both because I, I have about 50 households that I'm responsible for as an advisor. So I see that, but then also, you know, I'm working with the back office. And so I, I see both, both sides of the, the coin. And one of the benefits is of the service teams was also the advisor can can order whatever needs to be done with their CSA and their CSA then can can go and put it into the workflow system the correct way to make sure that it flows through the workflow the way the back office really wants to see it throw, flow through oh. the workflow. So- so the so the advantage of having the CSA assigned directly to the advisor in essence is when not every advisor is shall we say always the best at perfectly following system and process when they've got a dedicated CSA who knows them and knows how they work and knows maybe the spots where they don't always do the follow through they're supposed to do the your your CSAs can help make sure that the stuff gets done the way it's supposed to get done because they can fill in those gaps in translating whatever the advisor wanted or needed done to the client to and here's how it gets put in the workflow system the right way cuz I'm just going to do it for you. Yep. Uh, yep, essentially. And and man, we've gone back and forth on that so many times. And um, I, I think we're finally at a, a at a point where um, having having the CSAs and the associate advisors really manage their workflows is is a much better route to go than having the advisors trying to remember how to manage. You know, how I don't even know how many workflows we have at this point, but you know, we, we, we we've got a lot of them. I was going to ask because I mean I, I certainly know there are firms out there that say like you know you're an advisor you get paid really well like learn the freaking system and do it the right <laughs> way like come come on come on people 
but I'm 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 struck that you're. It sounds like you've you've con- you've gone a little bit the other way of like okay, we've tried it, but humans are human beings, and some of them like it is just not how they're wired. They're not getting it well. We have people who get it really really well who are right there and dedicated to that advisor and the team. So let's just have the CSAs make sure that the stuff gets done the way that it needs to get done and stop trying to push the rock up the hill. Yeah the the way the way. We've always looked at the business, Michael, is, I mean, this is from day one. And I, I think this is actually one of the reasons that we're so successful. You know, I back in, I don't know, 2000, it was before the financial crisis. So I think it was 2006 or 2007. I went to one of the advisor, um, you know, build your practice uh, events. Uh, I don't even remember who, I think it was Asset Mark or something that they put on. And one of the things that, that really struck me at that conference was, hey, advisors need to be in front of clients. And so I literally came home and, and told Ryden and Alex, my two business partners, hey, you know, we need to make sure that advisors are in front of clients as much as we possibly can have advisors in front of clients. And that, you know, to me, that when I look at the workflows and when I'm ultimately trying to make a decision on should I really have the advisors spend time putting these workflows in correctly yeah. or should I have the advisors not worry about the workflows, you know, communicate with their CSA the way that they prefer to communicate with the CSA and then have the CSA spend the time putting the, the uh, you know, the, the workflow together and then let the advisor go on to the next client and, and you know, give that very high level customer service that our clients are very used to, to having. So uh, out of curiosity, just what, what are you using for workflows just to manage and track and actually do all of that? Uh, so we use Tamarack um, for our CRM, for our reporting, for our rebalancer. Um, we, we, we've really embraced Tamarack. Now, I will, I will say that um, the workflow system, our, our operations person, they, they changed some things around. She used to be able to do it on her own, but um, now they've made it, they've changed to service ticket type of arrangements. And, you know, you, you basically have to have a coding degree, I think. In order to get some of these workflows to to uh, move the way you want them to, but she's you know she's really embraced it. I've, I've told her, hey, I need you to I need you to make visuals of these workflows and really walk through it with advisors and CSAs and associate advisors, so that we're not missing anything from compliance. We're giving the client experience that the, that we want to be giving, and we're making tweaks to these workflows all the time based on you know, certain things, but she, she's done a great job of, of putting together these workflows, uh, using Tamarack. And, uh, I know, I know she gets some support from Tamarack, but, um, that, that's, that's been our main, uh, driver of the workflows. So, so how do you think about staffing ratios and, and capacity? So, Six client-facing advisors, two associate advisors. Is that is that literally like one associate can support three advisors? Is that the intended structure, or are you still in the midst of we're, we're hiring still, and structuring and staffing up for it? We're still trying to figure out the ratios. You know, we we our our firm. You know, all of our advisors prep on Monday. They meet with clients Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then we catch up on Friday. And you know, in in the perfect vacuum world, that's how it is. But we all know clients want to meet on Mondays. Clients want to meet on Fridays, <laughs> and so there's there's always exceptions that happen. But we really we were just like the just like the back office 
wants everything done correctly. Advisors also want want everyone on the front end to to manage the calendar in a in a way that's going to keep them you know in front of clients sixty percent of the time. Which in order to do it correctly, you've got to have time to prep on Monday. You've got to have time to follow up on Friday, and then you meet with three or four clients you know, on, on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So still trying to figure out, you know, and, and it's a, I'm having constant discussions with my associate advisors, with my advisors, what's working, what's not working. Are you, you know, are you able to get all your prep stuff done? You know, the associate advisors, if if they're, if they're going to have all the stuff done Monday, they've got to, they've got to prep for the following week on Friday by Friday uh, so that the advisors can come in on Monday and then, all the all the meetings are prepped and advisors can go through quickly getting ready making notes for their meetings that are happening throughout the week so it's a it's an ongoing you know figuring out how, what that ratio is I'll, I'll bet it ends up more like instead of three advisors to every one associate it probably ends up something like two advisors per associate so i'd, l- I'd love to hear more about this I guess like firm-wide calendar cadence that you've got of prep on Monday, meetings Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and you, and you kind of mentioned meeting three to four clients a day on on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, is that is that actually typical for you guys? Like nine, call that nine, nine to twelve client meetings a week. Is that a is that a standard for you? Not not for me because I'm also uh, you know doing the CEO role, so my client base is 50 instead of 100. So I probably do about half of that. But the advise the other five advisors are all pretty close to uh, you know 80 to 100 clients, and um, you know at that same conference uh, where you know where I came away and said you know we've got to have advisors in front of clients 60 percent of the time. One of the suggestions at that conference that I took with and ran with was pre-scheduling all of your meetings, every single one of them. Our, our clients either meet with us once a year, twice a year, or four times a year. Uh, I guess I guess there are some clients that, that are three times a year too by request. And so we'll build the entire schedule for 2023 sometime in between October and December of 2022. And we'll send agendas out to each of our clients saying, hey, these are the two or three or four times that we want to meet every single client, the very first meeting of the year, whether that's, you know, January through April, uh, usually we try and meet before tax time. We're going to go, we're going to completely update your financial plan. That's our main, our main goal. And we're going to talk about, you know, what's going on in the markets, what, how, you know, briefly talk about the portfolio, but really the main, the main driver in that first meeting is, Hey, we've got to update the financial plan. You know, did did things change significantly since we updated the plan? You know, look at the Monte Carlo simulations, look at what, what is the hurdle rate? These are, these are some of the things that we talk to clients about in that first meeting of the year, which then help us outline the rest of what we're going to do uh, throughout the year. Is there a structure for the subsequent meetings in the year or just whatever comes up based on the financial plan meeting we did at the beginning of the year? No, we, we usually want to make sure that we're hitting on risk management. So we look at, you know, insurances, 
We want to also hit on estate planning. So we look at, you know, when was the last time they had their trust done? Uh, you know, wh- who are their beneficiaries on there? Have they changed? Um, so we, we have a couple of things each meeting that we want to make sure we get done. If it's four meetings, you know, we spread those over four meetings. Generally, those four meeting clients are a lot more complicated. So we need more time uh, versus the clients that are two meetings. We'll just jam those into the same stuff, but into two meetings versus four meetings because it doesn't it just doesn't take as long. Okay. And and when you say pre-scheduling the meetings, I mean, I guess I'm wondering like how how pre-scheduled are me if I'm like if I'm a if I'm a four four times a year client for you, does that mean some sometime this fall, like I'm literally going to get four dates in 2023, like now on my calendar of here are the four times you're going to come in to meet with scene in the coming year. Yep. You get a, you get an agenda with four dates picked and the topics that we'll go over in each, the general topics, we don't always stay on topic, but you'll get four dates. They'll be on the calendar. And we always let our clients know, look, these are pre-scheduled dates. We all know that we have trips and things that come up and we'll be flexible. And And our staff um, confirms appointments two weeks out. And if folks are you know, on vacation or whatever they need, they, they can reschedule. But we want it on the calendar so that we keep those, we keep clients and ourselves sure. accountable so that and we make sure that those meetings actually do happen. So it's not even like you reach out to clients to say like, hey, let's find four meeting times or like, here's a calendar only link, please select four of them. Like you literally just pick four dates and tell them here are the dates. And hey, if none of these, if some of these don't work, like you can totally change them, but you you just tell them what the four dates and times are going to be. Yep. That's what we do. And, and we've been doing it long enough. We've been doing, I mean, we've been doing that since 2007 and uh, it works really well because you, you get clients who are in stages of their lives where they cannot, they, they can, they can't meet until four or you get somebody who's retired now and they want to meet at 10 because they don't want to deal with the traffic. And so every, you know, they want to meet on Wednesdays at 10 because they have doctor's appointments on Thursdays and Tuesdays. And so you you get, you get creatures of habit. (laughs) So we, we, we just start with, okay, well, we'll just pre-schedule them with the same meetings that they had the year before. And it's funny when I'm doing my meeting prep, it's, it's very, I'm very surprised when I do my meeting prep to see, because uh, you, you can see the date and time that we did the meeting last year. And, you know, very often we are we are staying on the cadence it's, that was originally set. <laughs> so, I, so I guess it's like, how, how often do clients reschedule? Like I just, my calendar is overly busy. So I'm envisioning like someone sends me this and I'm just replying like, yeah, none of these four work for me. I'm going to be rescheduling. <laughs> but Granted, I have an overly crowded calendar and and just I'm thinking practically speaking for a lot of our retired clients like they they don't have a lot going on on their on their calendars in general. So I I mean, some of them would drive, you know, ask us to send paperwork so they could sign it by hand and drive it to the office because they really just needed something to do for the day. So I'm going to envision like. The rescheduling is probably not actually as frequent as we would assume or think it might be. Most clients are actually just fine with this because their calendars aren't that crowded. 
Yeah, we work with a lot of retirees, uh, and retirees are are the creatures of habit. They're yep. you know if they're scheduled and 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 they come in for their March meeting and they tell us, hey, I'm going to be on a month long vacation in October when we're supposed to meet next time, so I can't meet on October 17th. So let's figure out another day. And so that's you know six months in advance. It's it's very easy to find another time for them. The folks that reschedule more often are the ones that are actually still working. And I would say we have some folks who who reschedule and we try and keep the advisors as busy as possible, but we also want them to have capacity because if they if they're, you know, just going from meeting to meeting to meeting and they don't have capacity, then service levels are not gonna be they're not gonna be able to respond to people as quickly. So we try and be mindful of the workload that we're putting on each staff member. Yeah. And then that leaves some gaps. But there there are definitely times when, you know, my business partner Ryden, he he likes to have five meetings a day sometimes. And he'll he'll just block a whole bunch of meetings in one week and just just power through it. Yeah. So if, if you're trying to reschedule for that week, it's not going to happen because it's just, he's, he's just, you know, solid, solidly booked. But um, other advisors, you know, are a little bit more available for reschedules. Um, but, but it's worked up, up to this point. And, and, you know, if it, if it starts, if we start to find that, uh, my staff says, Hey, seeing, you know, who, so-and-so we, we try and reschedule clients and, you know, we're a month, two months out. Well, then we need that. We, we need to have a conversation with that advisor about, Hey, maybe we need to reduce your, your, your client list. Maybe we should be transferring some client relationships to other advisors and, or maybe we shouldn't be putting new client, you know, just a combination of things. And, and so I'm struck that as well, you said, as you cue this up, clients get an agenda, I guess, like just not, not just, Hey, we have a meeting next week. Here's the agenda for the next meeting. But when you're at the end of the year and you're doing your pre-scheduling process, they get essentially an agenda of the upcoming year. That is like, here are your meetings, here's the, I guess, like the service calendar discussion, like the topics and the focus we're going to have in each of the meetings. Here's what we're going to be doing for you in the upcoming year. Yep. I mean, that's basically what it is. And the four, the four pillars are the financial plan, risk management. So just checking all their, you know, what if scenarios that something, you know, husband dies, wife dies, long-term care, disability. And then we look at estate planning. And then in the fall, we look at tax planning. And and I'm going to imagine just because, I mean, you have to do this across 500 odd clients, like they're just a standard template of what it looks like. And you, you drop in the, you drop in the meeting dates for each client and most of the rest is just kind of here are the standard things we cover. You just have to pair it up to the meetings. Yeah. Yep. And we keep it real general. And, and to be honest, I haven't looked at one of those agendas in years. I, I used to follow them. And, and now, you know, you're, you get, I mean, I'm sure you're the same way you, you get a, a cadence with your clients. Oh yeah. Yes. I, I the first meeting of the year, I want to make sure that I put every effort when I'm reviewing their stuff to look at the financial plan and look at it with them. Hey, has anything changed? Is this still, are, are you know, is, is, are these expenses still in line? Do we need to increase with inflation? Do we need to, you know, and then every year uh, in in eMoney, my portfolio team and I, we run new expected returns 
and we update eMoney is the financial planning software we use. We update our our model portfolio expected returns inside of eMoney. We we update the expected return and the expected risk inside of eMoney. So like last year, valuations were high, interest rates were low. We lowered our expected returns significantly to the point where advisors were kind of upset with me. And I said, look, I mean, you've got to look at where we are with valuations and you have to look at where the 10-year treasury is at. It's at one and a half percent. And so, you know, when they go over that financial plan with somebody and we're using a lot lower expected returns, some of the Monte Carlos don't look as good. But then on the flip side, the portfolio's up a ton to mitigate some of that. So we're always trying to stay a little bit ahead. Instead of looking backwards, we're trying to look forwards. And so at the end of this year, I'm going to be able to increase those expected returns and the portfolio is going to be down. You know, our portfolio is down, call it 10% for the year uh, across the board. We're going to, we're going to be able to increase those expected returns and so we, we spend a lot of time with that financial plan in that first meeting. Interesting. But I'm, I'm struck, like, the plan update process for you, like, it's not just that the numbers move because a year has gone by and the markets did what they did and you saved what you saved, you withdrew whatever you were going to withdraw. A big piece of what makes the plan update more dynamic for you is you're changing capital market assumptions to the current environment every year. And so that that can move the numbers as well. I would imagine sometimes that can even move the numbers more than the market volatility move the numbers when you're when you're projecting out over multiple decades. Yep. Yep. And and you know that I I I, I, I struggle with that sometimes because, you know, advisors, rightfully so, for somebody who's younger, when we're using these rates of return that we see over the next 10 or 15 years, they, they come back and say, well, seeing, you know, what about these 45-year-olds that aren't going to, you know, that, that, that the plan is going out 35, 45 years, yeah. we're, we're using these very low interest rates <laughs> or return rates. And I say, well, you know, that's that's true, but we're trying to guide them. And so I, to me, it, it's just a more conservative way of, of planning. And then when they get to retirement, those, you know, you, you've, you've done a lot of research on the sequence of return risk. Yep. And it just is so, su- such an important time that five years right before retirement and the first five years of retirement that I, I just want to make sure that advisors are giving very sound guidance no, no one knows what the next 35 years of returns are going to be. I would argue that the next 10 years of returns, you have a lot better idea of what those are going to be than the next 35 years of returns, per se, given the current environment. And those are more important to clients, in my viewpoint, than mm. the ones that are in year 25 and 26 and 27. So we, we put more of a focus there. And just where did the capital market assumptions come from in the first place? Like, is this your... Is this an internal analysis process? Is this a, like there's a certain certain third party research service we like to use? Where where do you derive your numbers from? Um, we actually use um, J.P. Morgan's long term capital assumptions to formulate a big chunk of ours, but that doesn't mean that we don't agree with them all the time. So we we will we will change things uh, if we don't necessarily agree with some of the stuff, but I'd say nine out of 10 times, we're very close to, to what those look like. Okay. 
And, and it was, it was very nice when we lowered, you know, some of our growth rates to three, three and a half percent, uh, last year. And, and the advisors came, you know, after me <laughs> for lack of a better term, you know, we pulled up Vanguard and looked at their return assumptions for the next 10 years. And they were even lower than ours. So not, not much lower, but they were, they were pretty much in line with ours. And so it was, it was nice to have something to <laughs> yeah. go back at and say, Hey, you know, we're not, we're not the only ones that are, that are doing this. So I, I understand the, the structure now as, as it exists today for the firm. So now help, help us understand how this evolved and where the, where the challenges, challenges had come as this was evolving that you know, got, got you to the point that you had to do some restructuring to make it this. Yeah. So, I mean, I think all advisors go through this, especially advisors that have multiple partners. You know, we, we met at an, at an insurance plate at a, a insurance agency. You know, one of the partners had been there a little bit longer. The other one, you know, he'd been there maybe four years and I'd been there just over two years. They were more on the relationship side, client facing, uh, whereas I was getting my uh, CFA charter and was more on the investment side. And so we, we just kind of paired up. Uh, we, we, we got really fortunate. Uh, we did some HR outreach to some clients while we were at the insurance agency. And uh, one of our clients that worked at Medtronic, you know, introduced us to the HR person and we were able to go in there and do retirement seminars. So, you know, where a lot of the insurance agency representatives were dealing with younger folks, we really hit it off with retirees and, and getting into Medtronic and doing their retiree seminars was really the, the launching point um, for, our, for our business, really. I just want to make sure I understand. So like, so you were living in insurance agency world and, you know, doing the general selling, selling insurance to anybody that is, uh, is interested in, in policies you've got to sell, but had a particular client who was in Medtronic who could give you an introduction to HR, which got you in doing retirement seminars at, at Medtronic. I, I'm assuming that's a company that has a lot of company stock and NUA and a bunch of that stuff that that comes to the table as well. And so that became where you started focusing from the initial insurance client base into like, this is where we're going to grow because we're getting traction here. Yeah. And really, I, I was so early on that I, I really didn't even get into selling the insurance as much as the other two folks the other two guys, uh, one of the guys, super competitive guy was doing fantastic at the insurance place, but just, you know, didn't feel very comfortable. I mean, they, they were, uh, they, they taught us to sell life insurance policies for an, as an accumulation tool. Um, well, what, and when, when was this? This was 2004 and 2005. Okay. So yeah, so you're still like, this is still the era of variable universal life as an accumulation vehicle because yes. we're still, we're growing in the mid 2000s. We've gotten past the tech crash. Okay. Yep. Yep. Medtronic is a company that's based in Minneapolis, but they have a, they have a campus here in Tempe and they were giving their employees, they were matching their employees 401k contributions with Medtronic stock that they had purchased in the 70s. And so, like you said, it had low cost basis. Many of these, many of these uh, employees, 
they, they, I mean, Medtronic is, is one of those places where you just, the, the client, the, the employee base is so loyal. They are creatures of habit themselves work. You know, we've met so many people that worked there 30, 40 years. They had a great pension, you know, they're matching in, in 1970 Medtronic shares that have a cost basis, you know, a cost basis of 20 grand and uh, it's grown to 350 grand or 400 grand inside their 401k plan. And so now you get these advisors, Ironwood advisors come in and show them how to do net unrealized appreciation, you know, and then, and then we have the 0% cap gains tax rate where some of these clients are retiring early before they turn pension and social security on. So you can really leverage all of the tools and, and you just show how, how much tremendous value uh, you can add. And, right. and, you know, that, that spreads from Medtronic to Intel to right. other companies, Honeywell around the Valley. And all of a sudden we, we, you know, now, now we're, now we're dealing with all these retirees and, and our business has, has really taken off. So at, at this point, had you left the insurance agency and, and gone to the, the broker dealer world just as you're, as you're getting this traction with Medtronic and others? Yeah, we, we did, we did one set of seminars at the insurance agency and uh, we said, look, guys, you know, we're not we're not selling insurance anymore. We're doing <laughs> asset management. We're doing financial planning where we are right now is not the place to be. And so we decided we, to because at the end of the day, just their retirees, they have retirement assets, they have portfolios, they need help, they're willing to pay for it. And like VUL for accumulation is not exactly the best sale for someone who's 62 and rolling out a half a million dollars from their retirement plan for retirement. It's like just wrong, wrong fit, wrong stage here. Yep. Yep. And so it was really that opportunity that led us. And, and actually the, the, the manager at Northstar that really hired all three of us, he actually left to go independent um, himself. <laughs> and, uh, well, that's so he, sort he, of some like awkward writing on the wall. At yeah, that point. he he saw he he joined Next Financial, and so we actually uh, followed him. And uh, I can't remember if he was our OSJ at first. Maybe he was our OSJ at first. I forget <laughs> when we first jumped over to Next. Uh, but yeah, we went we went independent broker dealer at Next Financial, and then we set up our own RIA. That that was uh, that was 2006, April 2006. And then by 2009, we opened our RIA, you know, started custodying at, at Schwab. And then I think 2015, we dropped the broker dealer because it was just, you know, it, our, our business was RIA. And, and our attorney came to us and said, why the heck are you still with an independent broker dealer? You've got all this risk out here. You, you've got you've to get rid of it. <laughs> what was the risk that the attorney was concerned about? Uh, conflict of interest. So, you know, why would you, why would you sell an an annuity, uh, in this situation versus rolling over assets? Our comp breakdown at that point was less than 5% was, was commission income. Mm -hmm. And many, a lot of it was trails that, uh, that we had done, you know, even at the insurance agency that, you know, we, we just, it it just, they just built up. And so he just didn't like, it was uh, Stark and Stark, which I'm sure many people who are on the call yep. are familiar with them. Uh, he, he just didn't didn't like the fact that we had a lot more complexities with our compliance program, having the ability to wear the two different hats. 
So uh, we agreed with them and we, we always had a goal of going 100% RIA, getting rid of our insurance licenses and, you know, very, very proud to have, have gone through that process and now call ourselves fee-only advisors. Well, I'm, I'm struck that, you know, for a lot of broker dealers, it's been a compliance challenge for them as advisors have dual registration for BD and RIA because... FINRA and a lot of the brokerage regulators are looking and saying, well, how are you choosing what's brokerage and what's advisory? And, and that, that focus only grew after Department of Labor's fiduciary rule that really focused on rollovers and transitions between yeah. brokerage accounts and advisory accounts. But I'm, I'm struck to hear that this, this didn't come from the broker-dealer side saying we're concerned about the conflicts between the BD and the RIA. This came from your RIA compliance attorney that yeah. said you don't, you, you, don't, you don't want FINRA brokerage all up in your business in the first place, yeah. uh, that it's, it's an RIA exposure to keep the BD affiliation as opposed to the BDs worrying that it's an exposure for them to have, for you to have your RIA affiliation. Yeah. And, and it just, it, it, for such a small part of our business, it was creating all of this complexity, you know, with the ADV and all these other disclosures that needed to be there because of the two different hats that you can wear. And, and so I, I, one of, I, I remember because when, when I, when we finally stopped, uh, when we finally got rid of next and went a hundred percent RIA, it was like, wow, why didn't we do this years ago? <laughs> Because it really did get a lot easier. I was going to say, like, what what changed that made it that made it that much better for you? Um, it was just a lot of little things that we just didn't have to deal with. We didn't have to deal with the we didn't have to deal with the broker dealer. Uh, we didn't have to deal with all their the the stuff they required. Um, and it allowed us to focus on truly what we wanted to do, which was RIA, and be laser focused on it, and not have—I mean, just re- just remembering all the rules, not even the differences between the rules, but just remembering all the rules in the first place—is uh, a very large task. So, and then staff—you know, staff—they—they uh, they dreaded prepping for meetings where we had all these legacy insurance products and. It, it, it really streamlined the way we did business. What, and even, what did this, what did the staff dread about it? Uh, just preparing, calling the old insurance companies where all of the assets were held and, you know, preparing our, you know, basically reviewing for our, our meetings. We, we still have some of that old stuff. We, we didn't even know that you could be a, a third party uh, that the client could a- access or authorize you <laughs> to, manage their outside account or their annuity or life insurance policy without even being uh, an insurance agent. Um, You know, when when you're deep in it, you think, oh, I've got to be registered. I've got to be licensed in order to help clients out. But then you start digging through it and you realize, oh, you actually don't. So how does that work for you now? So we, we have a bunch of clients who, well, we have a bunch of clients who have authorized us. Um, we've we've had you know some of those products that have been li- liquidated and used to live off of, and so they're you know just by time those kind of go become less and less right in inside, and and then when you focus on a hundred percent RIA stuff, you, you don't you don't have the one off new annuity that has been put out right. there, and then also with Charles Schwab. They've got some for, for non-qualified annuities where there's tax implications. Um, we were able to move those into uh, you know a, a very low cost annuity uh, with 
Great West through Charles Schwab uh, and get a little bit better situation for the client. Right. Because I know I like Schwab had that partnership to a Great West fee-based product like well before a lot of the other like fee-based annuity products that have been rolling out in more recent years. Yep. Yep. And it just, I mean, it just streamlined everything for us. But, you know, that doesn't happen. It, it doesn't happen immediately yeah. over time. It, it you know, those, those old products start to just fall off the books. So I understand like the, you know, the old products, and the revenue start to fall off the books, but it sounds like it, it wasn't gone. Like it was less than 5% of your revenue, but that's still a non, non-trivial amount of, of money as the, as the firm grows. So like, what did you do with old clients, old policies, old, old trails? Like, did you just walk away from it? So we, we just recently, we just recently dropped our insurance licenses at the beginning of this year. And, and literally we, we have money that keeps coming in to the Ironwood account. And then also to the three partners, personal accounts, because we know the, you know, they, they've, they set them up as individuals. So it's, it's got to go to the individual. You can't even assign it to the company. And literally our compliance uh, our compliance attorney told us we have to donate that money. So we have it going to a separate account, basically. And once a quarter, we pick a charity. E- each of the partners picks a charity and Ironwood picks a charity. And we send out a check to those charities of all the old trails that we still are getting that we can't even, like we've tried to even tell the insurance, just stop paying us. And they, they won't. <laughs> you can't. You can't turn uh, it off. All. We can't turn it off. <laughs> Interesting. So, so why why donating it to charity then? Like, just why why that going was, that route? That was his. I mean, well, so he said you can't you can't you can't take them even even small dollar amounts. You, you just can't keep it and call yourselves a fee only advisor. And so his recommendation was to just once a quarter send those out to charity so that you can you know really remove that okay. conflict of interest that you know in any any perception of conflict of interest altogether you're not benefiting from those policies one bit and i guess in practice like you drop the license so you're not writing new policies either way this is literally just old old trails that you can't stop correct yep March was finally when we ripped the Band-Aid off or whatever you want to call it and called ourselves fee-only and started donating all of the old trails that still hit. And at that point, at that point, you know, when I said 5%, that was 5% was back in 2015. Okay. So by by now, like it's, it's it's even smaller. Yeah. Less than probably less than half a percent. Okay. You're talking, you know, like 40, 40 grand a year, probably something like that. Okay. And and now that we, we were able to we were able to stop some of the of the commissions and so you know we're probably talking about giving to charity somewhere around ten grand until those companies stop paying us ten grand a year. Okay. So I get kind of the the progression of the business model like started insurance when IBD in two thousand six added the RIA in two thousand nine dropped the BD side in twenty fifteen ultimately dropped the insurance end twenty twenty one heading into twenty twenty two so I, I I get it on how the the you know the, the like the regulatory structures of the business evolved as it grew when when did the dynamics start changing from just the the staffing management end that it started getting complex and more difficult i i think i i can remember back to when we had to make uh some investments 
in some software and and really it was Tamarack. Before before we joined and, and signed on with Tamarack, we were literally, uh, I, I was the portfolio manager and we were doing trades manually uh, through Schwab. Uh, we, were, okay. we were using the Schwab trading, they had a trading tool, but I mean, it was literally lots of spreadsheets Yep, and being the operation, when, having the like operation. When, when was this, and how this, like how this, big was the firm was, at this point? This was 2011 ish. Okay, um, we were probably getting close to a hundred million under management, maybe okay. less. I, I don't, I don't remember the exact specifics, but I do remember telling my two partners, "Look, we cannot do this anymore. We can't have customized portfolios. Uh, I mean, we can have customized portfolios to an extent, but we, I mean, if 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 somebody comes in and they have the same risk appetite and the same risk ability as as the next person that comes in, why wouldn't they have the exact same portfolio?" Yeah. And um, and so I told them, look, I, 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 we, we, we've got to spend some money on some software. So the first thing that we got was the rebalancer, Tamarack rebalancer. And it was like, I don't know, 12, 14 grand. And back then, that was a lot of money to spend. Yeah. But I jumped in. I said, guys, we have to do this in order to scale this. And so we did that and it, you know, it, it was, it was right around when we joined Charles Schwab. So it was 2009 is when we did that. And we, we stopped using the Charles Schwab tool shortly after we jumped onto the Charles Schwab side of things and we started using the rebalancer and it, it made my life so much easier. You know, one of, one of the things that we do for clients is if they've got a, you know, if they've got the, the suggested asset allocation, the, mo- the model that we have, one of the things we do is look at, okay, they've got, a, they've got a trust account that's taxable, they've got an IRA that's tax deferred, and they've got a Roth IRA that's tax free. And so we, with the software, with the, with the rebalancer, we can prioritize which of the holdings go right. into which account for asset location. And that's something that we've done for clients uh, from the beginning. That in and of itself makes portfolio management way more difficult to do from a logistics standpoint but it's the right thing to do for clients and you can see it in the in the you can see it when you when you look at the tax implications right uh you can see the benefit and it's a huge benefit and so it's very important that we do that and that's you know that's why we ended up with two or you know if you count me three people in the portfolio division who are basically, you know, doing the day-to-day trades inside the rebalancer. We, we didn't get to that point until we had, you know, we, we started scaling. I can pinpoint that that was like the turning point because then it, 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 it streamlined everything. And, and um, we, once we were able to manage portfolios in a, in a very easy, uh, structured way, then, you know, it was okay. Now we're going to build everything kind of around that. And we just started putting in uh, more and more technology. Um, I I talked the guys into you know wanting to make sure we had a robust CRM. We were using Redtail at the time, and their workflows didn't at the at the time their workflows didn't really weren't weren't really cutting it. Um, and so we decided to move to Tamarack. We started adding the workflows in. We needed 
to post performance reports and we needed portals for clients. So we decided, okay, well, we're, we're using Tamarack for all these other things. We might as well use them for billing and reporting. And, you know, we, we basically went all in with, and, you know, now we're paying Tamarack $30,000 a quarter, uh, <laughs> something like that. For all, for all the different functionalities. For all, for all the different functionalities. Yes. And, you know, my, my two business partners are not thrilled that we're paying $30,000 a quarter to Tamarack, but me being able to see both advisor and back office, the back office's job is much easier. We, we would have to hire, you know, five more people, six more people to do all the things that the Tamarack software does for us. So that, okay. was, that was one of the turning points there. And, and all of this, you know, brings complexity and then you've got three, you know, three advisors that are all very competitive. <laughs> mm-hmm. We've got egos involved. And from day one, we've all, we, we, we've all, well, I shouldn't say from day one, we started off kind of eat what you kill because that's exactly what the insurance agency right. taught us. And so the three of us, we had, I don't know, 10 different codes <laughs> <laughs> at the broker dealer on how to split things <laughs> and and uh, oh, right. like all, all the different split code combinations of yes. like 2575 you, you, you and Ryden and you and Alex and all three of you and like a 5050 case and a 2575 case and a 7525 case yes yes and so you could imagine and we we at some point when we were still at next and before we had started the RIA, we really decided, hey, you know, in order to, for this to work, we, we need to get rid of these codes and we need to all work together and, and we just need to pay ourselves a third, a third, a third on everything because it, there's too many things, there's too many conflicts going. And, and, you know, so anyway, we went to a third, a third, a third, and that worked for a long time. Well, so wait, how, pause there. Like, how do you get to a third, a third, a third? Because I'm going to assume that out of sheer random coincidence, your eat what you kill allocations did not happen to be almost exactly a third, a third, a third already when you they, made this they decision. They were not. And you bring up a good point that, that I just brushed over completely. How, how do you Al- equalize this? Right. So Alex had been in the business the longest. He had the biggest book of business. I had the next largest business and Ryden had the third largest business. So basically Ryden and myself wrote Alex checks, two checks to equalize everything. I forget exactly how we came up with the numbers, but we all we all thought it was fair at the time. Basically it was as though like you put all of your revenue into one pot based on the percentages that it was. And then to the extent that Alex had a larger pie, like you essentially bought his share down. Correct. Yep. That's exactly what we did. Uh, I think I wrote him a check for 40 grand and and I think Ryden wrote him a check for 80 grand, so, something like that. And, and how big was the business? Like, like when were you doing this? How big oh, was the business back it was, then? It was, it was 2000, it had to have been 2007 or 2008. Okay. Um, so, how, I mean, how big was the business then? We, You're, we, we had 15 probably, million, 75 million between no, the three of you. No, we probably had 15 million at the time. Oh, okay. Of AUM. We were, we were just, we basically had said, look, we've got to focus on this AUM business. This are, you know, what ended up being the RIA side of things. And we need to make sure that everybody has a role. And so, you know, Alex and Ryden, you're going to meet with clients 
seeing you're going to manage the portfolio. You're going to, you're going to be in meetings where the client is uh, more analytical and wants more information on the portfolio. So, so that's kind of how it, it, it got to that point. Okay. Okay. So this was, this was pretty early for you guys actually to have the realization of, Hey, we need to equalize this and, and, and put us all together. So were you the, the, the Medtronic thing, Michael, really forced it. Uh, we were so successful with the Medtronic thing and, and what percolated from that, that it was like, we, we, we've got to streamline some, some of these processes. We each have a different assistant. <laughs> Our, me and Ryden were splitting one assistant and Alex was splitting another assistant. So mm-hmm. we're just all over the place. And, and in order for it to really work and for us to take that opportunity and really take off with it, we, we, had, to, we had to do something. Okay. And so coming out of it, was it literally like there's an entity and we each own a third of it and like that's that's the deal? Like just you straight up equalized it? We did. That's exactly what we decided to do. We we wrote Alex checks and then we split everything. We split income a third, a third, a third, and we split ownership a third, a third, a third. Okay. So and like we're I mean, just envisioning the size then, I'm presuming you you weren't really paying yourself salary at that point. It was just like the business makes money, the business after expenses has some profit, and that went three ways. You got it. Yep. Okay. So I, I think you said like that held us for a while, which I'm yeah, presuming it, means like, but that didn't hold indefinitely. <laughs> no, it, it did not. And and one of the turning points, uh, you know, you there's certain things that happen in your career that you can kind of go back and point to. So in, somewhere around 2000, when we dropped the broker dealer, it, it was right around that time, we started having some grumblings amongst the partners and, and in hindsight, rightfully so. So what were the grumblings? The, the grumblings were, hey, you know, I'm, I'm bringing the, this value to the firm and I'm getting paid a third. And I'm bringing this value to the firm and I'm getting paid a third. So it was basically people were not happy with what they were making for their perception of what they were bringing to the firm. And I'm presuming this is the wonderful scenario where like there are three partners who each believe that their value is more than a third, which doesn't add up from Matt, right? Like you, yeah. not everybody can contribute 50% to the growth of the business because the, the pie is not 150% big, but like we all, we all perceive our relative roles yeah, uh, and I, I, from I our think, lenses. I, yeah. And I, I, I think it was more uh, one of us was unhappy myself. I, I was, I, I didn't think it was fair but I didn't want to upset the apple cart for, for my own personal, like I, I felt like I was one of the ones that was bringing in a lot of value. I also agreed with my other business partner that he was bringing in a lot of value, but I also didn't want my third business partner to be harmed in any way. So I was kind of in the middle kind of. Okay. Um, and so, so what was the split that was creating the distinction? I mean, is this a, like one person's contributing more to growth and new clients than the other? And that was putting the pressure on it? Yeah. Uh, and and really, where it was really difficult for me was, you know, every advisor has their their strengths and weaknesses. Alex and myself, any any time a, a big client would come in to the firm, Alex and I would do it together, and that's just how we did it. Whereas if it was, you know, somebody maybe with lower AUM, Ryden would run with it, and Ryden would run with way more client meetings 
than Alex or I, but we, we were kind of already separating the business based on that. And so, you know, from my perspective, um, it was that, you know, when I, when I tried to see everything that Alex was bringing to us about, Hey, you know, we're, we're doing this and we're doing that and pay shouldn't be equal. Responsibilities need to be defined. It, it, it was part of me was like, well, the reason that it's like this is because we haven't given Ryden the opportunity to work with some of those bigger clients. It's not his fault that, that Alex and I would just take those big clients and, and make sure that we landed them for the company. And, and, uh, ultimately when you land them, then, then you end up working with them. And, uh, it, you know, that's, that's where the, that's where you start to have the unequal, um, uh, I don't want to say work cause Ryden was working his butt off, but it's the unequal, well, but you, you get, unequal, you, well, you get on, you get an unequal revenue like you. Yeah. Yep. So then your, your client base and Alex's client base end out having faster growth because it's getting the bigger clients and may end out having a, a larger percentage of the revenue because it's getting concentrated with the bigger clients. Correct. Yep. And so, um, it, this, I mean, this went on for, this went on for probably two years and it got to the point where literally I, I was kind of put in the middle and I kind of had to choose and Ryden and I kind of said, okay, you know, Alex, you're, you're the squeaky wheel. We're going to move on without you. And, and that was, you know, very low point in our partnership. Well, that, that's uh, like, we think the business may need to break up. Yes. Yes. It, 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 we got to that. We got to those types of conversations and I talked to our Charles Schwab reps about it and they suggested that, Hey, you know, every firm goes through this. It's not just you guys. Uh, you really need to talk to these consultants. And um, I think it. I think it was our. Our. I think it was Rich Kerr at the time was our was our uh, Charles Schwab relationship manager. And I think he connected me with John Fury at at um, AGS uh, Advisor Advisor Growth Strategies. Uh, yep. Yep. Okay. And. Um, I had a first call with John and I'm, you know, explaining to him what's going on. He's like, this is, we, 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 we do this. This is the exact thing that we do (laughs) help you out. This is what everybody goes through. And I said, I'm just, I'm just really curious, you know, how much is it going to (laughs) cost? And he said, well, and this, this is, uh, this is 2018 ish, late, Uh late 2018, early 2019. And uh, he said, well, you have three partners. At the time, I think we had like six staff members, maybe seven staff members aside of us. So a total of, let's say, 10. And he said, okay, well, you know, our, our fee to come in and, and help you build a compensation structure and interview every team member and assign roles, we, we can do it for 27000 bucks." <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, 27000 bucks." <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if my partners are going to go for that. That's what I'm thinking. I didn't tell them that. (laughs) Yeah. So, Um, so just like size this for me relative to the business. Like what, what was your AUM or your revenue at this point? So at the beginning of 2019, we were at about uh, 240 million. Okay. Okay. So two two million ish of revenue or so, give or take, give or take a bit. So like, that's a big number that size of the firm. In hindsight, it, it, yes, at the time it it was a big number. Um, You know, we had just gone, we had just gone through the end of 2018. We had a bunch of market 
turbulence and the portfolios were down and, right. you know, to, to, to spend in it. And then you've got, you know, each, each partner saying, I'm not making enough money. <laughs> uh, to, to each begin partner. With. Yep. Like. Yeah. <laughs> right. So to, to take 27,000 out of the pot to fix this problem, it, you're, you're thinking, gosh, that, you know, but anyway, we hired them and I'll tell you what, in hindsight, I would have paid them triple because, they came in, they interviewed every single one of our staff members. Uh, they interviewed us. They were the independent voice of reasoning. And really, it helped me mm-hmm. being the one that, and I'll, it, this is just my perception, maybe Ryan and Alex felt this way too, that they were in the middle. But I felt like I was in the middle of Alex and, and Ryden. And the type of person I am, it, it, it was very difficult for me to hear the mm. things that Alex was saying and, and, and think logically. I, when we had these, it's, it's hard, it's hard not to, not to get defensive of the business or prior decisions or I mean, like even with the best of intentions, just it's hard in the moment. Yeah. And, and these conversations, we had many of them and they always were emotionally driven and very difficult conversations to have and right. would, would run all of us to the ground to the point where it was like our, our business was suffering because we were having these conversations. But I, I remember we went eight, uh, advisor growth solutions. They're here in Phoenix and well, that's the, convenient. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah very, nice very touch convenient. that he's literally local. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so all, all three of us went to their office and they had this spreadsheet that they created uh, and they basically showed us uh, all the clients that Alex had brought in, all the clients that I had brought in, all the clients that, that Ryden had brought in, that we all had agreed on, like, here, here's, here's what it is. And it, it was an emotional meeting, but we had, we had the spreadsheet and, and we left that meeting. I, we left that meeting, not, not on good terms. Um, and it was a Friday and I think AGS was kind of like, well, you know, they, they're kind of trying to be the independent arbitrator there. Um, but as I went away from that meeting and was able to actually look at the spreadsheet and try and just work with AGS instead of work with Ryden and Alex and, and, and be independent, as independent as I could be looking at the data that they had put together for us. It, I realized that some of the things Alex was saying had merit and some of the things I was saying from the beginning, like, Hey, we need, everyone needs a role and responsibility and you guys have to commit to that role and responsibility. And we need to get paid for that role and responsibility as a salary. And so anyway, the, the, what, what came out of this was we ended up with a compensation plan that where we valued each activity. So you bring in a client that you, 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 you get a bonus for that. You get a bonus that's ongoing and you get a bonus that lasts for two years. Uh, you work with the client. So you service the client. You get a different bonus for that that's ongoing. And so it aligned the activities that are valuable for Ironwood with, uh, with, with what people were doing. And, and, which I guess notably, like for a business that you had run for 10 plus years, as we did the transactions with each other to equalize this business. So we're a third, a third, a third on ownership and a third, a third, a third on income. This made it not equal income. Correct. Not equal income. Were you still equal ownership? 
they they did not find a business reason to change our ownership. So they so, they did believe that we we should still be th- a third, a third, a third. Interesting. So so the so the deviation here was y'all can be one third owners for essentially how you split the profits of the business off the bottom line, but you need to start paying yourselves a salary or compensation for your roles in the business and those may and that may not be the same compensation if you've got different roles or different amount of growth you bring in or a different client base like you're you're taking more from the middle of the P&L before you get to the one third split of the bottom of the P&L. Yep, yep. And it's really it, it's three components. It's the base salary and, you know, their base salaries are based on uh, wealth advisor or senior wealth advisor and then my my uh, salary is based on CEO, and I actually have a CEO bonus that, that they don't they don't have that ability to to have that bonus, and it's based on firm revenue growth and profitability. And then all of us, all three of us, have the ability to get the lead source bonus and the onboarding bonus and the servicing bonus. And so, okay. depending on you know which clients I work with. And, and which clients I'm bringing on is going to change my bonus structure. So just break those out for me a little bit more. Like I understand, so I understand a lead source bonus that, you know, you, you brought a prospect to the firm, you get bonus. I understand the servicing bonus. That's essentially like, you know, how much revenue you manage, you get compensation tied to that. Yep. But I think you set up, there's a third bonus onboarding. as well in, in between for, for onboarding. So what's, what is that? We kind of changed this over the over the year. We tweaked it a little bit. So when an advisor gets uh, brings on a new client, and that could be, let's say, you know, Seen gets a referral from one of his existing clients. Well, I'm not taking on any new clients unless they're over, you know, three four million bucks. So let's say, you know, one of my clients refers me to their friend. They've got a million dollars. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna do that um, client with one of the wealth advisors because I, I just can't, I, I don't have capacity to take on any new clients. Okay. Um, and so I'll work with them. And now when I, when I work with the wealth advisor, because I brought that client to the firm, I am the lead source. And then the person, the, the wealth advisor that I, cl- that I close that business with, if, if we're successful and we're able to land that client, that client's revenue, 25% of it for the first two years will be split with the wealth advisor and the lead source that, that was able to onboard that client. Now, if I, if I decided I wanted to do that client solo by myself, then I would get the entire 25% and would not split it. Okay. And that so so twenty five percent of revenue for the first two years that a client comes on board is like a a bonus pool that is half allocable to whoever brought it and half allocable to whoever takes it. Yeah, Re- really, really. It's, if you it's if you true. bring it and take it, you get both pieces. Yeah, and and the impetus with that was because we used to have it just it would just be the leads the lead source advisor would get thirty five percent ten plus twenty five for the first two years, and then after two years, the twenty five falls off. And what we were finding is that, you know, we started doing some business development things, smart asset, digital marketing, where we're starting to get, we're starting to get uh, lead, uh, leads come in that really were Ironwood was the lead source. So we weren't, okay. we weren't paying that out. And it, it, it became very apparent that the wealth advisor going through our process 
the wealth advisor is a very important cog on whether that <laughs> client becomes a client or not. And so uh, it was very important for me to reward those wealth advisors for success when they when they land clients. They go through mm-hmm. our process. We do a financial plan for them. You know, I don't care what anybody says. You know, a lot of our advisors say they're not salespeople, but they but they're when they yeah. go through that financial plan. Um, and they're trying to sell somebody on our, our AUM model. <laughs> they're they're trying to show the value. And, yeah, well, and you, you, you still have to sell yourself and yes. your services. Like it is different yes. than selling a third party product. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so if so, in these scenarios where you started doing more centralized marketing, which means like there is no advisor who's the lead source bonus, like Ironwood's the least lead source bonus. If the advisor you know closes the sale and onboards the client, does that mean they still get the whole twenty five percent bonus, or they like would. they get twelve and a half, like they split it with the firm since the firm sourced it? No, in those situations, I I just give the twenty five to the. A hundred percent to the advisor who walked the prospect, and because those are those are okay. those are a lot more difficult, and 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 usually, and and you know we we we've added so much over the past couple of years. This is how we started. We now have a business development person, full time business development person. So any lead that comes in, uh, our business development person is the first contact, and so then he brings that to whoever's the best fit advisor, and then those two would split the twenty five percent. So the business development person participates in it. Yep. Okay. Interesting. So why the why the business like what's the business development person's role then? Like, how does that separate for like, why not just send leads to advisors? Like, where does this business development person fit in? So we, we signed up with Smart Asset a couple years ago, and uh, two of my advisors were taking all the Smart Asset calls and, or not calls, but the emails in and, yeah. and speed to lead. And they were getting, they were just, it's, it's a ton of work, ton of work. And so we made the decision to hire a business development person. We get, I think we get 20, 15 leads or 20 leads a, a month. Those go straight to, to our business development person. He's making sure that they're followed up with, that they're speed that speed to lead, and he's making all of the outreach so that it saves our advisors time. Our our advisors can then spend time with current clients. In my opinion, you know, the most important thing. Once our business development person has somebody who has been vetted, qualified, then they can figure out, okay, uh, XYZ advisor is going to be a really good fit in this situation. They can position that advisor and then they they do a meeting together the advisor kind of takes over well there's a there's a lot that goes into that for our business development person so they have to be able to share in that in that bonus because i because if they have success you know i want them to share in that right and so so this business development person like this isn't necessarily a your job is to go out to networking meetings and develop centers of influence. Like it's it's not ex it's not necessarily an external like go go source the business. It's a we're running centralized marketing that's bringing in prospects, but someone's got to vet and screen and qualify the prospects and just you know, just do the chase for you still have to be diligent in following up with people who reached out to you. And so this this person is doing all of that work to make sure that you get a you know, that you close the business that you're marketing to. 
So, so yes, that's the main reason that we hired this person, that we, that we actively looked for this person was all the, the digital marketing that we ramped up. You know, one of the things that it's kind of a side note here, uh, but I think it's important for advisors to know if, if you're custodied with Schwab, they've got some outstanding programs that you can be involved in. You know, one of those programs that we were involved in was a marketing basically 101 where um, one of their consultants came out uh, with their with their uh, with our represent our, our lead person at Schwab they came out I think it was eight times and did this eight eight meeting uh, program with us to bolster our marketing and so one thing that came out of that was we hired a digital agency and started doing digital marketing and started doing Google clicks you know all of that stuff that's been pretty successful. And then we started doing um, smart asset and, and we've been pretty successful there as well. And so the immediate need for this business development person was, yes, everything you just said, do all the dirty work. But that's still, even with our ramped up digital marketing, our ramped up smart asset, that's still probably 50 to 60% of his time. Okay. The other 40% of his time, he's, he's, uh, he, he comes from an old, old trust company. Um, and so he's meeting with a bunch of attorneys just to let those attorneys know, Hey, if you run into a situation, we're here for you. Uh, so he's, you know, he's probably having three or four lunches a week on top of taking care of, uh, the smart asset and the incoming digital leads that come in. Okay. And and so how much growth is driving off of all these new digital marketing initiatives? Um, so we had really, really powerful success with Google early on. We've gone doing, through, doing what? Like uh so we read we redid our we hired a, a a marketing firm. The first thing they did was revamp our website. And so I had just gone through the marketing program with Schwab. So I spent a considerable amount of time with them you know, creating a client persona, uh, creating our client value add, you know, really spent a lot of time with them. They built us a wonderful website and like clockwork, all of a sudden, e- even just, just, we started getting lead forms filled out. We, I, I can count on one hand how many lead forms we had filled out on our old website in, in 15 years. And they switch it over to their website, you know, done all uh, m- much better than our old website. That we did, I think uh, we we did it with a little bit of consulting, but we basically tried to do it ourselves, and and the product was reflective of that. <laughs> Understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I'm sure every advisor goes through that too. You know, we had to, we had to pay this firm a good amount of money to to take us through this website process, and then we started doing blogs and we started doing cornerstone pages. And they told us, hey, you know, we're going to do a Google ad campaign. So, you know, they they researched the keywords to use and we started to spend some money on Google clicks. And um, I mean, we got we got we got a, a three and a half million dollar client in in the first three or four months of of uh, doing the Google clicks. Um, and we probably gotten, I say, somewhere between five and seven clients in two years which doesn't sound like a lot, but you, you start to add it up and all of a sudden now you've got, you've got, you know, $50,000 of recurring revenue that's coming from those clients that yeah. now, that now you just paid for your, your whole entire marketing in one, in one or two years. So as you've gone down this journey, like what's, what surprised you the most about trying to build your advisory business? 
what surprised me the most oh man how 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 difficult it's been when we left the insurance agency i'd only been there two years and it just so happened it's it's kind of a funny story but i'll 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 leave it for another day we we were trying to be sly about leaving the insurance agency and and long story short an an email was intercepted And we ended up being asked to leave, but it was just the, it happened to be when the when the owner of the company was there, and he you know brought me in for an exit interview, and he said, "Hey, I just I just want to tell you one thing." And I said, "Okay." And he said, "Running your own business is hard. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff." And um, he was very right, <laughs> but it, it's also very fun. And so I think one of the big surprises for me is the amount of work but also how much I actually enjoy the work. Hmm. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Uh, absolutely 100% when all three of our the partners were, you know, when I was having to have conversations with my wife about, hey, you know, the comp- we might have to disband the company, I might have to start over, like mm. that that was definitely the low point. And it's funny, the, the going through that process with AGS – Literally, I mean, we were we were at about 240 million of, of AUM and they just put us in the right seats. And we've we've just it's been my staff is happier. They're like, well, instead of having three bosses, we, we now have one because now you're you're the CEO and we we can make decisions faster. You know, there's there's no infighting because, you know, with 95 percent of the decisions, I've got authority to make the decision and I, I deal with the ramifications. Now, one of the things that came with that responsibility was me feeling like like you, you mentioned this. I don't know if it's early, early on or, or when we were talking before about each advisor has this where they, where they, you know, they feel like they're uh, out over their skis or, you know, yeah. they're, they're doing something that is over their head. When, when they told me I was going to be the CEO, I was like, whoa, whoa. Um, I, I don't know how to, I don't, what am I getting myself into? So the first, first thing I did was, you know, you talk to your friends and I, I'm a runner and, I've got a bunch of running friends and one of my running friends said, seeing just, you talk to us all the time about your business running. Why don't you just have a couple of us, you know, be your advisory board? And I'm like, that's the best idea ever. <laughs> so we, uh, I, I put together an advisory board and, you know, that, that's also something I, I really enjoy now. I've, I've got friends and, and business partners who are now on that advisory board who have helped Ironwood. I don't compensate them. I take them to mm-hmm. dinner once a quarter and basically have an agenda that we always go way, you know, way off off agenda and uh, always talk about awesome things. But going through COVID, like mm-hmm. uh, these kind of things that I, you know, I'm, I've never had a experience being a, a CEO or having that kind of responsibility. I, I mean, if, if that advisory board wasn't there to help get me through that, it would, it would have been, it would have been very difficult. So, so was there tension from Alex or Ryden about just going this path of, okay, scene's going to be the CEO and makes the decisions there, there, now? There, there actually was not. Um, John, John got us all into the conference room and he, and he said, Hey guys, I have some good news. <laughs> and we're like, okay. And, uh, he said, you guys are really in alignment on a lot of things. And so, you know, Alex and Ryden both think that scenes scene should be running the company and should be CEO. <laughs> the, the major things. How do more, you feel about that scene? <laughs> I, well, I, I, 
I was I, just envisioning like he says that and like all the heads at the table turn to look at you. I I was ready for it because he asked me the same thing and I said, you know, I, I should probably be the one that that is managing the company. But I when he actually said it, I, I one, I was surprised that that both Alex and Ryden were on the same page there. Um, but two, it literally felt like a ton of bricks on my shoulders, like, oh my gosh, like mm. now now instead of three people that have all the responsibility, but none of the responsibility. Now it's one person with all the responsibility and there's no, you know, I, I can't say, oh, well, I, I thought that was Alex's or I thought that was Ryan's or uh-huh. there, there's no, there's no uh, <laughs> getting around it. Yep. But it's also made me better. Um, you know, I, I, I feel that I do very well under pressure and I'm a very competitive guy. I wanted to make sure I did well. And that forced me to reach out of my comfort zone per se and talk to my friends and then all of a sudden create this advisory board, look at the business in a completely different way as a CEO, not as an advisor. And, you know, we made a bunch of changes right out of the gate. We, we, uh, we didn't have a minimum and we implemented a minimum quarterly fee of $1,250. So $5,000. As part of that rollout, we partnered with FiX, which is now Pontera, because we had a lot of clients that had assets outside of us at the 401k. We were giving them guidance on that, but we weren't getting compensated for it. And so what what a what a awesome thing to package together. Hey, you know, client, you're at 300000 but you have an $800,000 401k. We have this new minimum. We have this new software program that allows us to help manage your 401k, we have this one basically reset conversation with every single one of our clients about our minimum, about FX and, and Pontera, and just make basically we 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 made clients tell us if if they were going to allow us to manage their their money or not all at once um, versus working with somebody, and I'm sure everyone's done it. You work with somebody and they've got 200 grand with you and they've got a million and a half dollar 401k. You help them with it for 10 plus years. They retire and then they say, oh, I'm not going to let you manage the 401k. It's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult thing for AUM advisors to go through that conversation. And so we didn't have to wait 10 years. We, we had that conversation with every single client. We, we moved over about 40 million in assets under management to Pontera in, in about a year. And our client count went, went down. We, we, we got rid of some clients that just were never going to, we're never going to roll over their 401ks to begin with. And so that allowed us more capacity to do some of these growth type things and to add the marketing. So our, our, our client count went down, our expenses basically went down and our AUM went up. All of our ratios uh, improved tremendously over that period of time. It was based on, you know, one change in the business and, and, you know, it was a year long project that every advisor had to, you know, in those pre-scheduled meetings that we have with clients, they had to bring it up and for some clients, bring it up again and, and then bring it up a third time mm-hmm. and then say, Hey, you know, next meeting, you've got to have a decision on this because we're not going to work with anybody that, that doesn't pay us $1,250 a quarter. And so how did it feel rolling that out and having it, clients who you're going to lose in that process? It, it felt, um, it was scary at first, but then once, um, once we had some of those conversations and most of the clients are like, wow, you can, you can manage our 401k now and I don't have to send you the lineup and I don't have to send you changes 
they were almost because Pontera just makes all that happen to do the trading on the held away accounts. Yep, and and also it, it um, also is a very good tool to really analyze the four hundred one k. It'll tell you if there's brokerage if there's a self directed brokerage window inside the four hundred one k. It'll tell you if there's loan features. It'll tell you what the expenses of the funds are. Um, I mean, it it it, it is a very useful tool. And above and beyond that, our clients, it might have been scary to roll all of this out. And I, I, I asked the board and they said, no, I, we would we would, we would would love the fact that you could manage our 401k. Mm-hmm. And their response was the same. And, and all of them, except for one board member, are clients. So when they, when they gave me that response, I was like, okay, this is perfect. Like people want this. It's not, they, they don't like the, the disjointed, Hey, you know, I have to send you these recommendations and you have to go make them. You have to go into your 401k plan and change them. So that definitely, once you kind of see the reaction, you start, you start to feel good about the decision and then, and then take it a step further. You start to see the people who don't allow you to do it. (laughs) You're like, Oh, I, I, I could almost, I could have almost picked out the people who weren't going to do it in the first place. And they're seeing people who just, they want, they want the full service advice. They want all of the guidance and they want to pay half the price. So what, what do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, as you were going down this road? Uh, I wish we would have, I wish we would have dropped our, our insurance licenses. I wish we would have dropped the broker dealer much sooner than we did. It, it, it just makes you laser focused on what you provide for clients and, and, you know, now for, you know, we, we still believe in insurance, but we have a resource, a, a company here in the Valley that does all kinds of insurance and they have agents for the different types of insurances. And so if our clients need to pick up a, a 20 year term or 30 year term policy, we have a resource that we can send clients to, to make sure that they fill and, that gap. And um, so who, who do you work with to do that? Uh, it's a company called Arizona Group uh, here here in town. Okay, and and so I just I've got to ask like as a firm that you know that wrote insurance and did this business for so long like you know does it does it bother you is it a challenge to like to send the implementation out the door knowing what they're what they're going to get compensated for a client you basically lobbed up to them maybe initially it was. And, and we, we, you know, we had some stuff that was in the hopper. So, uh, we, we sent them a lot of business right when we turned our stuff off. Um, and it was, you know, some of them were, you know, we probably sent $40,000 to them right away in, in mm-hmm. commissions. Um, and I, I would be lying if I didn't say that I didn't think about that, but what a lot of advisors don't understand is the amount of work. And I, I, I can appreciate it a lot more because I'm dealing with our back office all the time. Our back office hated filling out applications. They hated following up with clients about insurance. It was not worth the amount of commissions that we would receive for the amount of work that the, and, and just how much extra work it would throw on their plates. And so once we got rid of that and, and then they could really focus on the wealth management stuff, you've got a happier back office also. And I, I you know, I, I, in, in hindsight now, I have no problem with it, Michael. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't even care 
that they're that we're lobbing it up there and they're because well, they're, they're they're still they're doing all the work to make it happen they're doing, they're doing all the work we all know really don't want to do we all know when you deal with clients and you tell them to go purchase a long-term or a long-term care policy or a or a term policy even a term policy i mean to get them to actually do it you've got to be you've got to hound most people <laughs> yeah and that's not fun so what advice would you give younger, newer advisors looking to get started today? Uh, I would give newer advisors, I would give them the advice to really look into what drives value for an advisory firm. Um, you know, when I when I was starting off and, and we didn't discuss this, but part of the whole AGS thing was what is what is it worth that that scene manages the the Ironwood portfolios, uh, that he's the portfolio manager. And you know, a lot of, I think a lot of young advisors might think that that's a really valuable piece when, you know, when you actually talk to industry professionals who deal with this stuff on a day-to-day basis, it's not as important as, as you might think. And so you really want, if you're younger, you want to one financial planning and, and following Michael, (laughs) that's probably the smartest thing you could do because he, his, his team provides such great resources uh, for advisors, I, I can't tell you how many times I've forwarded one of your LinkedIn posts to all all of my advisors and said, "Hey, you guys need to read this." <laughs> many times I've done that. So, younger advisors, you need to follow Michael first and foremost, and that financial planning is much more than more important uh, to get clients to realize that they've got to focus on the financial planning aspects, the things they can control and not worry so much about the portfolio and what's happening in the markets. You've got to know how to be empathetic and you have to know how to help them get through those volatile times emotionally Mm -hmm. and try and drive them back to the financial plan and using the financial plan to really dictate the decisions that we're all making. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast around success and one of the themes that always comes up is just literally that that word success means very different things to different people. And so you're on this you know, wonderful path of successful growth with the firm as you're now crossing half a billion dollars and continuing to grow. And so the, the business is doing well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Oh, that's... That's tough. Um, one one of the things that I really and it's it's changed over my career, and it, it I, I I it probably will continue to change. Um, but one of the things lately, or or you know, over the last couple of years, that's been really instrumental in my uh, looking at Ironwood and and to to quantify how successful or how well we're doing is to see the employees that we have and the strides that they've made, the career growth that they've had inside of our company uh, and, and looking at where they've come from to where they are now. To me, that's much more important than what I personally do is, is looking and seeing their growth that to me is is the definition of were you able to help other people attain their uh, definition of success? And mm-hmm. as we go through this, I, I I find myself building my my personal goals around making some of my team members putting them in position to be successful themselves. I love it. I love it. Well. Thank you so much, Sean, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. A- absolutely. This, this was actually a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks for awesome. having me. 
Thank you. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.